chapter 20, verse 7 is where we'll start in other light, other than other versions of or other uh, teachings we've done, which has been like over chapters or maybe multi, multiple chapters in which the times we have read them, it's like you need a Gatorade to like get partway through it. This is a very short and condensed text, but I'm going to unpack a lot going on. Acts 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to part on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So he's meeting right now with a small church in Troas, and he's coming back to disciple and shepherd the believers. So he's leaving the next day, he knows, he talks until midnight. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And, being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. The scriptures are fascinating. I say that because sometimes we can get anesthetized to all that is going into the document that you either hold in your hands or have in a few megabytes on your phone. And that it is as I said, maybe about a month or so ago, and we were talking about the scriptures and hearing from God from them. Depending on which section you are in, which book you pick up, somewhere from 2,000 to 3,500 years old, it is connected to a completely different worldview of an Eastern worldview. One that creates its text to, in many ways, be absolutely literal. It's telling about a literal story here about a person, a, a young boy who falls out of a window during a all-night teaching and gathering and dies but is raised again. But yet, as you continue to meditate on Scripture, you find there are deep layers. I, at one point in my life, thought, man, if I could just read through the entire Scriptures, I would basically be able to, like, you know, piece all things together, figure all things out. I mean, yeah, maybe Revelation is a little bit tricky, but, you know, I'll take a couple laps in there and then I'll be fine. And then you realize that the scriptures don't give any clear, they, they give a clear meaning on read one, but as you read them and study them and pour into them, even in this story, we'll just take it three layers deep, and I guarantee you there's more. But let's talk with just the first three layers. Let's take the story at a completely literal level. As I said, this is Paul inter walking into a place, Troas, and he is coming back through, though he did not come to Troas at the beginning, other people who are teaching the way of Jesus and building up the church did. And so he's in this section coming back to many churches that have already been built and he's building into them and he's shepherding them because we believe and yes, that the gospel must be proclaimed and people must hear it. But that coming and coming and building our lives around Jesus is a lifelong event of being discipled and being shepherded and being nurtured into the faith. Sometimes we can try to reduce the goal 
in modern Christianity to something that's scalable and reproducible, and that is to create situations where people can hear the words of the gospel, which is a good and right and true thing. However, if it is not also built around creating disciples, then you don't have what Jesus called and commanded us to, of therefore go and create disciples, not just converts, not just people who have heard the reverberations of gospel language in their eardrums, but people who have learned the way of Jesus. And Paul knows, as I've taught a few times here and will continue to teach resoundingly here, that that means that, yes, it is a process of truth entering our minds and both confronting and replacing lies that we believe, that we talked about last week, put there by the demonic world that is constantly whispering lies into our ear. And so it's replacing those lies, but then it is also then experiencing them on a heart level, meaning that you have several experiences over the course of your life that you live that truth to be true. Not just that you were loved and you were forgiven, but somebody looks at you and says, I love and forgive you. And then not only just an experiential level, but then you work those experiences that you have into your soul until you incorporate them. And then you are eventually able to produce a will that actually wills the good. Versus just the idea of if I take truth, I know it, and now I do it. I know and do and know and do. That only has a shelf life of as long as you can sustain motivation until that motivation runs out. And then I need to get new interesting knowledge to try to create more motivation until that completely burns out that mechanism. And so Paul is coming alongside. He's discipling. And as he does... He has a young man fall from the window, die, and he goes out and stretches himself on him. And it's not meant to even say, like, some people say, like, well, he says, like, hey, there's life still in him. Like, maybe he fell and he was mostly dead, but Paul says, no, he's going to make it. So they bring him in, and over the course of the night, he, like, rests up and he's able to go home. First of all, this is like a multi-story drop. And it's not just like, hey, a couple hours of listening to Paul and having some bread and water and everything and you pop up okay. But more importantly, the way that the language is displaying this is Paul reaches out over him and he's standing up and saying there's life in him as if to say something declarative. Because of what has just happened, because of something miraculous that has just happened, he is alive. And so on a literal level, the text is meant to remind us that we are building a kingdom that is moving towards a literal resurrection and recreation of all things new and good again. That we are not just moving towards a metaphoric, I am raised in my heart and I am raised to live a new life, but that you and I, because of our following after Jesus in his death, we will also follow after him in his resurrection. And that all things, all things are created new. And Paul realizes that one thing he needs to do is tour around to all the places that have already heard that truth, and they need to be encouraged in that again and again and again and again. Because following after Jesus is mainly a war of continuing to hold on to hope in the midst of often what feels like all things continuing to fall apart due to the curse, but reminding that there is is a small mustard seed of a kingdom that is growing and it will be redeeming all things and we're a part of it and so on a literal level you have just that now let's go one layer deeper the this story that paul is portraying would be sending alarm bells off to the hebrew and Israel learned learned person who had understood the Old Testament understands the scriptures because they're going to understand and also those who had followed after Jesus they're going to be hearing this story having already played out multiple times in the in the history of the scriptures both of which uh, 
in the most earliest iterations of the story can be found in the book of First and Second Kings. First Kings, chapter 17, the prophet Elijah. He is staying with a widow who has a son. The son dies and the widow comes to him and says, are you just here to mock me, man of God, and mock my pain because you're staying here and my son has died in front of your face? And so then Elijah goes and stretches himself out on the boy three times and then stands up and declares to the woman, your son is now alive. And it's a story of how she now says, now I know, man of God, that you have the words of life and truth from our God. And it confirms the things that he had been saying, that this is not just things I'm thinking of. These are not just wisdom sayings that, that are from some human origin. These are divine. Second Kings, Elisha. Big confusion over these two names in all of human history. Elijah passes off to Elisha. It's really much more profound if we go into all the n- names and, and the passing on of all those things. For modern people, it mainly just confuses which one is which. Either way, Elisha, Kings 2, is with a woman. A, a, it's described as a wealthy woman with a son who dies. He prays and stretches over his body two times. And then the boy sneezes seven times and awakes. And then all of this is pointing forward to the book of Luke, which again, as we've said this whole series, is the same author of Acts and is very much so meant to be the same story. That Jesus, walking through the city, sees a widow in the procession of a widow's only son who has died. And he sees her and he has compassion on her. And he says to the procession, he stops them and says, man, get up, for I say to you, get up. And the boy immediately rises. And it says that at that moment, all people realize that, that God has come and he's building his kingdom now and the fame of Jesus spreads all throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. It's this common story of entering in and ratifying that God's presence is here by the work of the miraculous, and not just the miraculous, but the resurrection of dead to life. Because as we say regularly, God is in the business of bringing dead things and bringing them back to life. And so in this regular pattern, now we go to Acts 20. And we recognize that Luke is telling this specific story, and he's pointing out specific details because he's connecting Paul to Elijah and Elisha, some of the greatest prophets. I mean, all throughout Jesus's career, when people say like, hey, who do you say that I am? Some people think that you're Elijah. We think of like the bigger prophets being the ones who are like the ones that have the longer books, like Isaiah and all that. Elijah was one of the ones that they considered the main ones. Hey, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or another prophet. Or in the moment of Jesus' transfiguration, when he reveals a bit of his glory by transforming into a, basically a picture of a, the God-likeness that is in him before a few of his disciples, it says that they see with him Moses and Elijah. 
And so this person of importance, Paul's getting connected to him, and Paul's getting connected to the work of Jesus. Because like we've, again, been saying through the book of Acts, the reason that these two books are one story is because Luke, to him, that whole chapter of the book of Luke is saying, here's how Jesus came to bring the kingdom through spirit and truth and miraculous signs, and he's clearly doing something different that is going to start here through his work. But then through his death and resurrection, and when he ascends, he says to his disciples, I'm now sending you. You are going to do greater things than I did. I created my spirit and created my kingdom, and I've shipped it off in the hearts of you, and now you are going to be the ones who continue to take it forward. And not only you, but the church that will descend after you and after you and after you until you get to the point where it is us now who, in Jesus, in his spirit, are continuing his work that started in Luke 1. And that's the main message of the book of Acts. Look how Jesus' work is being aligned so that when Paul does things that Jesus did, it's merely to remind people, you are going to do things like Jesus did. You are going to build the kingdom that he was building. His plan was never to come and him be the whole, I mean, him be the focus of it, yes, but not him be the one who built every single brick of the temple, but rather us being the ones who in his spirit continue to build that kingdom. Now let's go a layer deeper still, shall we? For me, this text really hinges on verse 8. So the scriptures are, again, created to be literal. They are created to show actual stories. This is an actual story that happened. Now, not all the scriptures are created to be literal. The poetry, not necessarily literal. The times where Jesus is telling parables... Possibly a literal story, but most likely he's telling a metaphorical story. But the other way, the story of here, this is obviously created and displayed in a way that is meant to be a literal story. However, the scriptures, again, also are in in the details that it will tell about a story or the details it will leave out or the things that will happen or the things that will be not happen are all trying to teach you something going on hidden, maybe, as we might say, and to, except for those who meditate deeply, who have a heart of wisdom, who grow and meditate on the scriptures day and night. Here's verse 8. Let's just start in verse 7 and set it up. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together and break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where he was gathered. The reason that that brings out something to me or makes me ask, it basically makes me ask this. Why in the world is that verse there? What's the point when every single letter and every single word is chosen meticulously because of the expense of writing parchment? You didn't just like throw, toss in random details to make it more flowery or to make it more like realistic fiction and put you in the characters' minds. Now, there are times where they give details to very much so say, this is a realistic story that happened. Is that what's happening here? But ultimately, it says, hey, there's many lamps in the room in which they gathered. And it makes me start to ask, okay, where do lamps show up in the scriptures? Where does light and darkness show up in scriptures? That's a ton, obviously. And then it starts to say, okay, is there something going on with what is being dealt with, with Eutychus falling asleep and falling into darkness and to death? And you start to look at just like, how does Luke use 
darkness, sleeping, a life, death, light, dark, all, all throughout his scriptures. And you'll see things like constantly throughout the book of Luke, Jesus is experiencing something that the disciples will often miss because they fall asleep. Luke 22, Jesus is praying. He goes, the disciples, they've all fallen asleep. Couldn't you stay watch with me just an hour? They're sorry they fell asleep. There's a story of when Jesus raises a girl. This is actually isn't in Luke, but in Mark. And he says to everyone, oh, she's just sleeping. And they laugh at him because they know that she's surely dead. And he raises her from the dead by saying, little girl, wake up. Or you see Lazarus and John. When Jesus says, hey, I need to go to my friend Lazarus because he has fallen asleep. The disciples don't get it. They're like, well, if he's just fallen asleep, he's going to wake up. It's fine. He's getting a power nap, God. Praise God for that. Uh, maybe he has small children. Maybe he hasn't had one in a while. Leave him alone. Um, but no, he says, no, he's fallen asleep. But he said they didn't realize he was talking about the fact that he was dead. This uh, concept of sleep and sleep and death and light and darkness are regularly held together. In fact, Paul is going to hold them together. In three instances here, uh, he's going to write about sleep and light and death and lies and truth and all these things held together. Romans 13, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. 11 through 14, it says this. And do this, understanding the present time, that the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality, nor debauchery, nor dissension, nor jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Thessalonians 5, 4 through 11. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us, like others who are asleep, but let, or let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since you belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer, but, went, uh, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you, in fact, are doing. I won't read the last ones from Ephesians 5 where he's going to basically say the same thing of like, hey, live in wisdom, awake, O sleeper, and rise from your slumber, which is actually pointing back to Isaiah 60, where that is the same words of the prophecy, and Micah 4 meaning that this concept of sleep and life and death and darkness and light are all over. And so the fact that there is a detail that says, hey, I just want you to know about this. There's a lot of lamps in this room. There's a lot of light in this room where Paul's gathered and he's discipling the believers. But a boy grows drowsy and falls asleep in the midst of that and falls out of a well-lit room into the darkness of night and dies. But Paul goes after him into the darkness, pulls him back, throws himself on him, and says he is but alive. They bring him back into the light, back into the room. Paul continues teaching all night, and they bring the boy home alive, greatly encouraged. Not only that, the idea of lamps is pointing to the idea of the temple 
or the tabernacle, depending on which one is going on in the historical moment in the Old Testament. They're the same thing. The tabernacle just traveled. The temple was built with a foundation. And in the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And around the Holy of Holies were seven lampstands, denoting that this is the presence of God. The presence of God is always marked by light and often by breath or wind. And so you have light filling the temple, saying as you go grow closer to the presence of God, you are filled with light because in him, as First John says, there's no darkness at all. And so you have a picture of this room of believers coming together, and it's like, they say, a picture of the Holy of Holies. And a boy who falls asleep falls out of that presence but is restored to it. Ultimately, what's going on in this passage? Luke is reversing the way that he talks about sleep with the disciples in night. And in the book of Luke, again, they're constantly falling asleep. Jesus is alone in the dark of the night. But in Acts, all of a sudden they're praying together through the night. They're singing in the jails through the night. Paul is teaching all through the night. And in this instance of that, a boy falls out of the light into the dark, but then is ultimately brought back and rescued. And if you take this then to what all Paul's going to talk about, and when I read in Romans 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5, and you can read in Ephesians 5, you recognize that this idea that Paul or that Luke is making the idea of there's a lot of lamps in the room is saying that the fact that a boy, Eutychus, whose name is Lucky, means Lucky, falling asleep is a literal thing that happened. Falls asleep, dies, and raised again. But it's also a warning for us. It's also meant, just like Paul says, hey, be wise about how you live in today. Be careful. Not of you all out declaring a rejection of God and his kingdom. Not you standing up and publicly blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Not you having this clear moment, but rather something much more subtle, much more insidious, but just growing comfortable. Allowing yourself to slip into a position that's unwise, like sitting in the window in a multi-story house at night. Allowing yourself to find Jesus and the way of following after him and growing into his likeness and building his kingdom less and less essential to the life that you want to live. The causes to this scripturally maybe are many, but I'm going to try to categorize them in two. And for pastoral alliterative reasons, I'm going to give them both in the letter D. Here we go. Check it out. Bringing in my inner Baptist. There it is. Uh, two Ds to remember. The causes that we're going to look at for the way that just like Eutychus is depicted as a metaphorical falling to sleep and falling into death, that we also might fall into a metaphoric or even literal sleepiness in our spirituality is distraction and disappointment. Let's deal with them once at a time. Distraction. There are a lot of good things to throw your life into. 
There are a lot of things that your life is about that, again, are good things and are actually a part of you living a holistic life and living a life that is in Christ and that is building his kingdom. But at all given moments, each of those things are competing to be that which you throw everything into. The urgent and somewhat important constantly crowding out the important non-urgent. I mean, distraction here, we've talked about them before, but I mean, they're obvious probably to a lot of us as we just kind of think like, what are some of the things that are probably, I'm tempted to probably grow sleepy towards following after the way of Jesus. Probably career for a lot of us. Again, a good thing. I risk, by the way, I'll say this several times, I risk by talking about any of these as as if to pit them against the way of Jesus. Like, oh, having a career is against the way of God. You're supposed to be a monastic monk who lives out in the hills and prays all day long. Not necessarily. In fact, I would say not at all compared to most of what you see the calling of God. We are meant to be co-rulers in the garden and we are meant to create goodness and culture and beauty and truth in this world. And often that is going to happen in many ways, but a primary way is going to be a source through a tangible career in your life. But yet it can start pushing towards constantly moving up and up proving something to people who you grew up with family members proving something to yourself getting to a level of job security getting to a level of financial freedom and security in fact connected to this one would just be the pursuit of money I said a couple weeks ago, and I want to regularly put before us, as a culture, we are completely addicted to money. Not by a little, by a lot. Our poverty line is killing it globally. And that's not to say, oh, they shouldn't. I mean, there's right and good things we should do to help the poor that are amongst us. But we also need to recognize there is always another number higher. The wealthiest top 10% in the world, when asked, who are you wealthy? And if not, who is? All said said together, I'm almost 100%. It wasn't quite 100%, but it was like in the 80s or 90s, statistically, a certainty. They said they did not define themselves as rich or wealthy, but often defined the tax bracket just above themselves or the next level of wealth. And if they were at the top level of wealth, it was those who had generational wealth that went back several generations and was now earning interest upon the interest of, to be able to never outlive. Family. Again, these are really good things. But I can get really busy with opportunities for my kids. Taking them here, taking them there, thinking through all of the meetings and this homework help and again all right and good things and things that were like i mean we just have to believe i mean all the parents in in here know i was gonna say in the room um in the world because that's the room that we're in uh now can affirm with me right now that there is a level of that just the busyness that comes associated to keeping up with the joneses with your kids is exhausting
trying to just get to the point where we have that existence where we are a happy family, the happy Christmas mornings, the happy all together later on in life and pursuing after something that maybe we're given, maybe we don't have. Maybe even just having a fa- biological family is, again, something that we can run after and it can become all-consuming. A right and good thing. Or security. I just want to feel like I'm in control. I don't care if I'm the richest person in the world. I don't care if I have all the kids or don't have the kids. I just ultimately, I want to follow after Jesus, but ultimately kind of feel like each day I can wake up and I know where I'm going. I know where things are coming from. I feel in control. Again, a right and good things. Proverbs is going to say, hey, save up for the day when everything might break. But I can also get so busy, so distracted running after I need to be in control that it ultimately becomes the ultimate desire. Just busyness in general. Entertainment. Again, good things. Go. Like, have your Netflix time. But there can just be a point where, like, it's so distracting out my life. I have no time for introspection. I have no time to stop and be still and know that he is God. Here's an interesting one. Running after what could be rather than living in the reality of what is. All of us fall prey to this one. And really, you could take that in career, money, family, security. I mean, any of these can basically be summed up in that sense of, yes, there's a right and a good sense to like having goals, crossing things off seeking after a family, like saying like, well, I don't have kids now. I might as well just not ever have them. I'm not married now. Just stay as you are, Paul says. Stay single. Uh, not necessarily. No. It's a right and good thing to find a spouse. It's a right and good thing to have a family. It's a right and good thing to advance in your career, to have money, to be wickedly generous. as a weird oxymoron. But there's also a sense of constantly wanting what could be, but yet is not now. Rather than having a joyful, radical acceptance of all that God has done and given and has blessed me with in this moment. I heard a quote from, uh, I'm like following the NFL uh, offseason like way too hard this year. Um, and I, I, I feel fine with it. Like it's ultimately kind of a nice little way to just have something when all the stress is mounting to be like, hey, you know what? This is important to kind of take away the stress for a moment, but it's also not that like important that, if it all goes to pot for the Colts, who cares? Um, and uh, but there's a uh, Quiddy Pay, who's one of the draft picks, uh, and is a a pass rusher for the Colts this year. He was um, he grew up in a situation of of poverty, I believe, in an African country. I'm not exactly sure all the history there, but like he's lived a pretty hard life, and they say that's actually why they chose him because he has a lot of high character, and he has five statements of which he lives by, which I won't be able to say all of them, but one of them rang in my head when I heard it. It was remember when you used to dream about that which you currently have. And I stopped in that moment sitting in Command Coffee, which was right by my house, and thinking about, I used to dream that this would open up and be a place where I could meet people and just come and get some work done. And I'm sitting in it, and I'm sitting with my family of four kids who we used to dream about having, and now they're here. And I think about just all these things again there's lots of stuff that i could wish that could be that are not right now but it was a moment of just like saying like look at all the things that i have 
and I used to dream about. And I can just be radically acceptant of what is and not all the things that are not. Because it can be a huge distraction of just slowly slipping off into the relentless pursuit of more. Or, I'd put another way, the relentless pursuit of something other than this. Again, not bad things. Just things that with time and age and continuing on can just slowly, surely, distractingly be urgent and somewhat important and can cause a sleepiness that allows us to just slip into a sense of going through the motions or having this pet sin that I nurse just because it helps with stress or something else. Let's talk about disappointment. Suffering is a human experience. I... Some people probably be like, you talk about that way too much. I just think we're in a life phase and a time in our lives where, I mean, most of us are pretty young. I don't know if you ever did the average median age in the room. It, it's 14. Um, and most of us are just about, either about hitting the point or are hitting the point where you start realizing I'm realized in my potential or about there. I'm no longer getting more fit. I'm no longer growing and getting stronger. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still as good as I once was, <laughs> but I'm only good once. <laughs> and I am in the process of dying <laughs> slowly, but surely. Uh, if I was on here on the roller coaster, uh, now I'm on here on the roller coaster. Just as high as I ever was, I'm just looking down. Um, you start just like getting to the point where, yeah, again, whether it's career starts squeezing and pinching uh, just a lot of life and capacity. Kids start squeezing and pinching a lot of capacity. Uh, we're not far off if maybe already there were aging parents and, and caring and starting to pinch and, and squeeze a lot of capacity. It's, I heard a, a friend say, I think he just, I don't know if this was anecdotal or something that he had read, that it was about the ages of starting at 30 and going through 55 is what most people claim as the most busy and difficult and long-suffering seasons of their life because of all of those things starting to squeeze in at once. And I remember just thinking of, few years ago of just like we're like a whole church of people that are about ready to hit the wall and so I regularly want to just lovingly remind you that that's coming and that it was never not coming and it's actually not something that God is apart from you from but actually something that he has designed to grow and meet you in there is no growing in deep, beautiful awareness of God and the Spirit and maturity without having some cocktail of suffering. One of my favorite quotes and most profound quotes comes from The Princess Bride. 
Life is pain, your highness. Anyone who tells you any differently is selling you something. Because there's a movement in Christianity that is, I don't think, scripturally based at all. But it's rooted in some level of, if you're just a decent Christian person, maybe it's not like wealth and prosperity and something like that obviously perverse, but it's something just like things will generally work out for you and you'll be comfortable and God will, you know, he'll close doors, but he'll open windows. And then that's really hard to say to someone when you're sitting across from someone who God not only seemingly shut all the doors and shut all the windows, but he burnt the house down. And actually, I would say maybe it's not even him who burnt the house down. However, he is using that moment as a redemptive edge to be near to you. Because just ways that I've seen, like just in little ways, and maybe you've seen these two in the church, the purity movement, which I now call like the sexual prosperity gospel, which is if you are pure, if you are true, if you kiss dating goodbye or whatever, and you do the things where you just like hold on to a level of purity, then someday God, A, will give you a spouse. And B, you will go off into marital sexual bliss the rest of your lives. There were no amens. Because that was not a moment that anyone felt like that is my reality in every way, shape, and form. Because you enter into a marriage with a broken person and you enter in with all sorts of... We live in far too sexualized of a culture for not us all to be very damaged and broken and have to have a lot of healing in this area. The missional prosperity gospel... If I'm sacrificing and doing all things to serve God and his kingdom, then shouldn't God at least not be throwing these obstacles in my way that seem like they're intentionally trying to tank me and, and completely disillusion my faith? Those moments where I look up like, God, I'm doing this for you, and yet it's really hard. But yet it was never promised that you wouldn't try to sow yourself, as I've heard, uh, I think it's Tim Keller who says, when you weave yourself into the broken fabric of broken situations, you experience the fray. The, the, the picture is not removing people's burdens, it's bearing their burdens. And again, and when amongst you're doing that and everything feels like it's a falling apart and then your own personal life feels like it's falling apart, and you're like, where are you now, God? I just, I just need something to work out. And I'm not even going like, to try to go into the fact, is God the author of that? Is he not the author of that? Is he using that? Is he not using that? Regardless, he's meeting you there. There are ways you will experience him that you would not experience him without that. Or again, maybe just a lesser version of this is just the good Christian comfortable gospel. If you were just do, just read the, read the verses of the day, show up on Sundays, you know, set up a direct deposit for regular generosity, and, you know, you'll just be generally comfortable. But yet we're following after Paul, who the list of his sufferings are many, and then he's also going to talk about in 2 Corinthians a thorn in the flesh that he experienced the entirety of his life, ask, regularly asking God to take it away until the Spirit said, I've given you this thorn because it's a display that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Or we look at David, 
the man after God's own heart. Probably, I mean, the ultimate picture when people say Jesus is of the line of David. In his early life, though he's declared king, he spends his whole life running and living in caves from a King Saul who wants to kill him. And then he's made king, and through his sin, the prophet Nathan says that your son that you bear from this sin is going to die, and sure enough, his seven-day-old baby is found dead. And then his son Absalom takes the kingdom from him, making him again an outcast, running from a king who wants to kill him, except this time it's his son. and regularly bring this forward to say for the moment where we like experience a level of suffering and just say like where's God in this or like where is this for the person who's following after him or doing the right things we just got to realize that's completely crazy and baseless from the scriptures that we read and that as we said maybe a few months ago you haven't been lied to you haven't been tricked you didn't make a wrong turn you're exactly where God is and is where exactly where he's meeting you Sometimes disappointment of just like, man, constant health struggle for you or your family or marriage is a lot harder, a lot harder than it looked from the outside. Or family just feels like it's falling apart and you just like everything you do feels like it's making it worse. Or loneliness is constantly telling you all sorts of lies about how nobody really cares about you. Or dreams falling apart, or maybe the most crazy one, dreams being fully realized, but just not having any capacity to fill your soul. I'm often reminded by a two-line poet from Ed Sisman or a poem by Ed Sisman, the poet, who said, Men past 40 wake up at night and look out at city lights and wonder why life is so long and where they made a wrong turn. Because community life also just in the church is hard. People's sin, bearing that is hard. People betraying you or deserting you or something like that is hard. The Christian life is hard. But it bears saying at this moment too, life, suffering is a human experience. You can suffer without any hope or you can suffer with it. It's not like a sense of like, oh, just give up Christianity and then you can just run after all the things. But again, it's like, no, like you, there's still everybody wakes up and says, why is life so long at some moments? But it's either suffering with a level of hope or not of hope. But again, the older you get, the more suffering and seasons that you incur, the more it can just be tempting to just slowly, silently, just never declare anything, but just kind of in your heart of hearts, let go. And maybe you never again denounce the faith. Maybe you just, you slip into duty mode of just like, tell me the bare minimum that I have to do to just kind of like get the monkey off my back. And it comes like the Pharisees who are just like, how can I do these things? However, Jesus says, yeah, but your heart is really far from me. Wake up. 
or maybe again it slips into some level of of just disobedience some sin something where it's just like this just helps cope with stress or i just never fully put this in the ground or i just kind of keep this a level because i can kind of keep it at bay when i'm not in that moment when everything's pressing all at once but then when i am press everything is pressing all at once there's no keeping it at bay and now it blows up and destroys me There's differences between dry seasons and continually showing up and doing the religious, like showing up to the community, even though it doesn't feel good, showing up to discipleship with myself and Jesus, even though it doesn't feel good, and pushing through dryness. There's a difference between that and just falling asleep and letting go. There's a difference between a lifelong of trying to put this sin in the ground and rustling and one step forward and two steps back and three steps forward and four steps back and five steps forward and just trying to kindly, you know, continually do war with it and just slowly falling asleep and just being okay with it. And all this, as we said last week, is fueled by deception. Little lies. This is urgent and this is all that matters in this moment or... God doesn't really care about you in this. Surely you should just go get yours of what you can experience now. So, um, I feel like I've worked us all into a good depression now. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, how do we, as Paul said, awake, remain constantly, not falling off into the darkness, but yet regularly being present, regularly saying, hey, how do I wake up and fight off the drowsiness? I think there's a couple things. In fact, I, I see them in that First Thessalonians text. I, I see them in all three of the texts, but I'm going to use First Thessalonians here. First Thessalonians 5, 4 through 11. Again, you can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read it. It says, but you and brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. Do not be, uh, belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on, and here's our first one, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He says, hey, how, what's one way that you continually like reawaken yourself or recheck what is my awakeness level constantly looking to the hope of your salvation which is ultimately keeping the end in mind like i can set all sorts of goals for my career but sometimes when it comes to my life and my discipleship and growing and just constantly like thinking about man there is coming a day in which i stand before god i can just put that on the back burner which is crazy and so i in this season in this season we, we've had just a lot of like little disappointment and each time what I found over the last couple of years that's just been an ultimate picture of encouragement for me has been the picture M. I've said it a few times. Uh, C.S. Lewis is the great divorce. He has this picture and it's this it's a story. It's like an allegory of a person exploring hell and exploring heaven. And when he's in heaven, he's like a exploring all things around and he sees a woman off in heaven in the distance and she's coming and it says like thousands of people are before her and after her and she's displayed with such beauty and glory and light. And the person touring heaven is just like, was that like some famous person in, in all of life? And, he's, and the, his little spiritual tour guide, uh, his spirit guide, uh, is there and says like, no, in fact, you never would have known her. She was just Sarah from some small podunk town in, in, in England, but 
But every boy who she met became her son, if only the boy who brought the meat to the back door, and every girl became her daughter, if only for a moment. And I just regularly put that picture in my head of just saying, like, I want to be continue to invest in people's lives, even at the point where I feel like it hurts, because I want to be a point where I have many spiritual sons and daughters. And just constantly keeping that picture in mind. I was walking on the beach uh, for a retreat that we have with our church playing um, group uh, called the Harbor Network, and we were in Naples. And I was walking along, like, this beachfront uh, property, and just having the moment of like, I will never own this. Like, I would not even own this if this was in Bismarck, North Dakota. I would never own these houses. Um, and just in that moment, like, I w- we were just thinking through a lot of financial crunches and struggles that we were t- had had over the past year, like, at that morning at breakfast. And that's why I think that m- thought came up to me. And then it was like this moment of just saying, but remember that picture. And what if I'm building one of these houses for all the spiritual sons and daughters that I might have here now in that eternal moment? I'll never have this on this earth. Some people are, and it's a good thing. But how can I build that brick by brick, mortar by mortar, inch by inch, plank by plank, for the sons and daughters that we have here on earth that we will share in eternity? It's a constant way to raise myself from the distraction, from the disappointment, something that my wife and I, we do twice a year. We get together and we just like say, hey, how's family going? What is our vision for our family? We wrote a little vision statement. It's really not that good, but it works. You know, like for all you're like, I'm not good at that. We wrote a really cruddy one and we've been living off it for five years. It's fine. Uh, And it just is like a sense of just like, these are the things we feel like God's gifted in us and it feels like things that we've been called to do. We tweak it every year. Does this still feel true? Have we grown in awareness? Have we grown in different seasons? And we say, if this is true, if these are our giftings, then what are the things we want to do in the next 12 months that might reflect those? So it's keeping the end in mind. Secondly, it's keeping open to yourself. A counselor who I had once said, hey, here's three words that you can uh, hold for your life when you're just pursuing self-awareness, growth, putting sin to death. He said it's curiosity, courage, and compassion. Have the curiosity to just follow every trail in your heart, every little semi-addictive pattern, every little like burst of anger, every little, like just have curiosity. Where does that come from? What's going on? Every sense of anxiety, season of depression. What's going on here? And then having courage to then ask the deeper question, what's really going on under there? But then having compassion with yourself. Because God, who's saying, inviting you to have freedom from that, is saying, hey, I'm not inviting you to a sense to know more about yourself and your sin and the lies you believe so I can beat you over the head from it, but rather that I can heal you. And I can make you more a picture of Jesus. I'm not inviting you to to smash and destroy you. I'm inviting you because, man, follow that curiosity. Have the courage because there's compassion waiting to, to work through that with a counselor, which me and my wife regularly do. To journal things out and say, man, what are things going on that are still holding over from my family of origin, from my growing up, from hurts that I still have not fully dealt with, from lies that I still fully believe? And lastly, we'll end here, keeping it in mind, keeping open to myself, and then keeping open to others. 
I mean, you see that again in Thessalonians actually didn't point out the keeping open yourself comes from that sense of like, you know, like root out all of these sexual morality, immorality, you know, impurity, all these senses of sin, continue to root those out. But then he says, hey, and continue to encourage one another as long as it's called day or in other sections, he's going to say, hey, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another and sing and speak prophecies and encouragements over another that we constantly do this because Paul ran out after Eutychus. And I have tried as much as I can to bind myself to you people because in the moments where my heart strays, I'm asking that you would know me and love me well enough to come after me. And I'm saying, I want to do the same for you. And I know some of us are going to move. Some of us are going to relocate. All that's going to happen. Praise God. That's a feature, not a bug. We send people all over the world at Soma uh, and uh, just by new opportunities. And but for, as, for a however long you're here, or if you're here for life, then I want to continually bind us together so that we see each other fall asleep and fall out into the window. And that we're encouraging each other from getting away from the window while we can, but then when we see somebody go, then man, we drop everything. Because we restore a brother or sister and we hold ourselves together because Paul says, hey, you need to do this as a group because you will be picked off if you're alone. You will grow drowsy and fall asleep if you're alone. It's not an if, it's a when. So that's why we do church the way that we do it. We don't do things highly programmatic. We do it in such a way that we can build relationships, not just on Sundays or on your MC night, but we try to keep things otherwise free, but can encourage each other to form relationships and do life with each other Monday through Saturday so that we can have people who know us, who have loved me well enough that I actually trust them so that when they say something to me, because whenever somebody like corrects me, the first thought is like, I am surrounded by morons. And then I come back and I repent and I say, but maybe there was, 1% 1% of that was right. And I'll pray about the ni- other 99%. Ah, I'm over time. It's Labor Day. Let's celebrate for the, the day, the long weekend that we get. And then just as we end, before I pray, I will say this. Where is there just a call to wakefulness? Where is there a call to being open to the end of your life and what that has being open to yourself now, being curious, being courageous, being compassionate, being open to one another, living in such a way that, uh, and this is the people, I, when I say that, they always say like, where are the people doing that for me? I don't know. Be that for somebody else. That's the only answer. Be the, be the person in community that you want to see. And as you do it for enough people, you'll be amazed at how many people catch a vision for it. One thing that we do as a regular sense of wakefulness is just remind ourselves of the end in mind, and one way that we do that is through the act of communion. Communion is what Jesus says, hey, do this to remember regularly the kingdom I'm building, the death and resurrection that it's built upon, and that I have redeemed you from all things, and that I am calling you to something far bigger than yourself. And so he takes the bread and he breaks it, and he says, hey, this is my body. Take and eat, and let's do that together. And he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for you, the cup of the new covenant. Take and drink. And we'll pray. Father God, 
Lord, I pray for us to constantly be self-analyzing. Lord, where am I? Where am I falling asleep? And not in a way that's just creating neurosis or, or just a sense of anxiety of I need to do more and I need to be better. I mean, the problem with this message is always the wrong people hear it and the wrong people don't. And so I pray, Lord, for the Spirit to comfort those who are just looking for more anxious ways to do more and do more and that they can be calm, that they might just be in a season where God is just being patient and loving them and having compassion on them. And maybe they're in a season of dryness and that's okay. Those are real. But then there's others of us who are just like in there long enough and we're just like, man, if I'm honest, I just feel like maybe I'm just like getting in that place of drowsiness. And so I pray, Lord, for those to be open to you about it. Repent, to be open to themselves about it. Seek that out with compassion for themselves and be open to others so that we, again, it's not an if, it's a when. We have to do this together or we will not make it to the end alone. You've made that clear abundantly. And so, Lord, let us be in our MCs and our church community as a whole and our broad, broad, or network of relationships, those who are encouraging each other as long as it's called today. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.